Welcome to Pete Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to cover well newborn care, a basic startup guide for a new human. Most babies are born fairly healthy, and over the years, we've learned a lot about how to keep them that way and identify problems early on. We'll go through the evaluation, preventive care, and screening that goes into getting a new baby started in the world. Before we get into what we do, why do we do it? Chances are you know, or at least know of, someone who wonders why babies need to be born in hospitals, and on the surface, it's a reasonable question. Babies were born outside of hospitals, and sometimes literally in the woods, for thousands of years, and humans survived as a species. It's true that a majority of babies don't need a lot of intervention, but being born in a hospital, or at least at home with someone who has the right training, is about making things safer for both mom and baby. You probably already assume that the infant mortality rate was higher back before hospital births and medicine in general really took off, but it's pretty incredible how high it was. The earliest year I could find good data for was 1915, when infant mortality in the U.S. was 99.9 per 1,000 live births. That's 1 in 10 babies dying within the first year of life. About 100 years later, in 2016, it was 5.9 per 1,000. That's an almost 95% drop, and while there are a lot of other factors like better sanitation and better living conditions in general, improvements in medical care is no small part of it. The main goals of a hospital birth and short hospital stay are to give enough time to detect the major problems that present in the early neonatal period and to make sure that the family is set up for success at home. That baby has to make the transition from living in the uterus, where it's always warm and literally everything it needs comes from the umbilical cord, to living in the big bright world, eating and even breathing for itself for the first time ever. It's a major adjustment, and aside from routine safety items like a car seat, parent education, and pediatrician follow-up, a big chunk of the American Academy of Pediatric minimum discharge criteria for full-term infants revolve around making sure that transition was successful. To be ready for discharge, the AAP recommends that neonates have no abnormalities on their physical exam or in their clinical course, have age-appropriate vital signs for at least 12 hours, and at least one wet diaper, one spontaneous bowel movement, and two successful feedings. In addition to providing reassurance when all those boxes are checked off, anything not going according to plan can be a flag for a potential problem. Abnormal vital signs can mean a lot of different things, but temperature instability, either high or low, is a sign of sepsis which can be devastating if it isn't recognized and treated. If the baby isn't making urine, you have to be sure to evaluate hydration status and potentially renal function and the GU tract as a whole. An inability to tolerate feeds or pass stool points you towards trouble in the GI tract like atresias or Hirschsprung disease. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves talking about discharge criteria already. So let's back it up all the way to the delivery room and baby's first test, the APGAR. The APGAR system is named for the woman who invented it, Dr. Virginia APGAR. By the way, the APGAR acronym came from someone else 10 years after her first paper about the assessment. She didn't go out, create a test, and name it after herself. Although as the first woman to head a specialty division and become a full professor at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, she would have had the right to flex a little bit. By the late 1940s, overall infant mortality in the U.S. had improved a lot from the 10% I mentioned earlier, but the rate of death within the first 24 hours hadn't really budged. Dr. Apgar set out to create an assessment tool that could serve as an early warning system, 
guide resuscitation, and also compare the outcomes from different obstetric approaches. She wanted the science to be easy to evaluate without the need for any special equipment, which is how we ended up with the five signs we look at today. The baby's appearance, judged by level of cyanosis, pulse, grimace or irritability, activity, and respiratory effort are all scored on a scale from 0 to 2. We won't go into the breakdown of the point system here, but it's easy to find almost anywhere. Those five scores are added together to give a total score on a 10-point scale. There's a little bit of variability in how the overall score gets broken down, but in general, a score of 4 or less is considered a depressed infant, a score between 5 and 7 is moderately depressed, and a score of 8 or higher is vigorous. In her initial study, Dr. Apgar found that infants born vaginally with the occiput as the presenting part, in other words, a textbook delivery, had the best scores at one minute, while babies born by breech extraction and external cephalic version had the worst scores. She also found that for infants born by C-section, the ones whose mothers had spinal anesthesia had an average APGAR score of 8, compared to just 5 on the initial APGAR for those whose mothers had the procedure done under general anesthesia. That finding is one of the many reasons that you can't just go to the hospital, be put to sleep, and wake up with a new baby like Betty Draper. The APGAR scale also held up for outcomes. In a study of over 15,000 infants born between 1952 and 1956, they found that babies who scored between 0 and 2 had a 15% risk of neonatal death, compared to just 0.13% for those who scored 8 or higher. Years later, researchers found that the 5-minute score had a better correlation with long-term outcomes, which is why it's standard to get 1 and 5-minute scores now, but the overall scale stayed the same. It all seems like common sense now, but at the time it came out, the APGAR system had a huge impact on neonatal care by giving providers a fast way to assess a newborn and a common language to use to describe it. The delivery is the most stressful time for all involved, but once everyone gets through that, the focus shifts. For parents and the newborn, it's time to recover and start to figure out how to handle feeding, changing, and all the other practical parts of parenting. For the medical staff, the goals are supporting the family when they need it, along with preventive care and screening. We'll start with preventive care, since for some reason that's become a controversial topic in the last few years. The general argument against routine prophylaxis is the same as the one against hospital deliveries. Babies were born without all of this for thousands of years, and everything went fine as nature intended it. The counter-argument is also the same. Nature is pretty brutal and all the things we recommend as medical professionals are low risk and make it much more likely that the baby will stay happy and healthy. Let's start with vitamin K prophylaxis. For non-newborns, plenty of vitamin K is produced by the bacteria that live in the intestines, which is good because we need it to make the proteins that help our blood clot, specifically factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Unfortunately for newborns, they haven't been colonized by bacteria yet, Vitamin K doesn't pass through the placenta very well, and there isn't much of it in breast milk. All of that sets them up for vitamin K deficiency, which can lead to hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. To avoid that complication, we give babies a one-time dose of intramuscular vitamin K when they're born, and we've been doing it since before the AAP officially recommended it in 1961. There is some evidence for oral regimens, but they require multiple doses, which adds some uncertainty, especially when parents are just trying to figure out feeding in general. Without vitamin K, infants are at risk for bleeding for as long as 6 months. The numbers are low, 
The incidence is as high as 1.7% in the first week of life and tapers off from there, but that doesn't truly reflect the potential problems. Easy bruising and mucosal bleeding are common, but vitamin K deficiency bleeding can also manifest as bleeds in the gut or brain, which are often asymptomatic until they become severe and life-threatening. Some studies show that vitamin K prophylaxis decreases the risk of intracranial hemorrhage by as much as 80 times. Not 80% less likely, 80 times less likely, just by giving the baby a head start on something she'll produce on her own in a few months. The first dose of the hepatitis B vaccine series is also recommended before a newborn leaves the hospital. I won't get into a discussion about vaccines, how safe and effective they are, and the arguments people make against them, because I'm pretty sure my audience doesn't need any convincing on the subject. So instead, I'll focus on why Hep B matters for newborns. After the hepatitis B vaccine was introduced in the U.S. in 1982, the number of new infections dropped by more than 90%, but transmission from mothers to infants stayed fairly constant. That's a big deal, because children who are infected in the perinatal period have a 90% chance of developing chronic hepatitis B, which can go on to cause cirrhosis and liver cancer. That's why screening mothers for hepatitis B is part of routine prenatal care. If the mother tests positive or isn't tested at all, the baby gets the hepatitis B vaccine along with anti-hep B immunoglobulin as soon as possible. For everyone else, the first dose is recommended at birth to reduce the risk of infection from everyone else, including any visiting relatives who might not know they're infected. The last bit of preventive care I want to cover is neonatal conjunctivitis. Strictly speaking, the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommends using erythromycin ophthalmic ointment on all newborns as prophylaxis against gonococcal conjunctivitis, and almost every state has laws on the books that require it. On the other side, the most recent Red Book recommendations and the AAP are starting to question whether or not that's necessary. In a lot of countries, prophylaxis is shifting more towards screening and treating mothers for gonorrhea and chlamydia to reduce the risk of infection as the baby comes through the birth canal. It's reasonable to screen all women during their first prenatal visit, and the CDC recommends rescreening during the third trimester if the mother is at high risk. Treating and testing for cure has had good results outside the U.S., and Canada has actually moved toward eliminating eye prophylaxis altogether. For now, the answer on your next test is still to use erythromycin, but it could be something that changes in the not-too-distant future. Our last major topic is screening. This is the passive safety net part of newborn care, where we try to find out as early as possible about things that might cause trouble down the road. Newborn screening varies some from state to state, usually based on the prevalence of a given disease, but there's a recommended universal screening panel that includes 61 conditions that all states should test for. Some of the classics include maple syrup urine disease, PKU, hypothyroidism, sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, and severe combined immunodeficiency. Most of these newborn screening tests are done by collecting blood samples on a specialized filter paper and sending them into the state screening lab for analysis. In most states, there are pretty strict protocols in place to make sure results are reported promptly and avoid any delays in next steps. Hearing screening is also recommended for all newborns because early identification of hearing impairments leads to earlier interventions and better outcomes. There are two main methods that are used. The automated auditory brainstem response uses electrodes to measure electrical activity in the acoustic nerve and the brain in response to sound, sort of like a very targeted EEG. The other test, otoacoustic emissions, uses a small probe to measure sound waves produced by the cochlea in response to stimulation. It doesn't matter too much which is used as a first line. Both are good screening tools. 
and in a lot of cases, the test that wasn't used for initial screening is done to confirm an abnormal result. From there, things move on to the audiologist for further testing and intervention. One of the most recent additions to newborn screening is testing for critical congenital heart disease, which was recommended by the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services in 2011. The standard protocol involves putting a pulse oximeter on the right hand and one foot, testing the pre- and post-ductal saturations. If either extremity measures 95% or higher, and there's less than 3% difference between the two, it's considered a normal test. If not, the testing should be repeated, and any infants who fail a second time or who have saturations less than 90% on the first screen should be checked with an echocardiogram and evaluated for infectious and pulmonary causes for their hypoxia. It's simple, but it seems to be a pretty effective regimen. The test is based on a study out of Sweden by a group led by Anne de Waal-Granelli, where they screened almost 40,000 newborns. 25% of babies with a failed screen had critical congenital heart disease, 47% had another disease process, and 28% were well. The addition of pulse ox screening improved the total detection rate for ductile-dependent lesions to 92%, which is really important for conditions like this that need early intervention. The Health and Human Services recommendations left it up to the states to decide the details of their screening protocols, but overall it's been a pretty cost-effective way to pick up on potentially serious problems. And with that, we have our new baby up and running and ready to head home. The biggest theme in newborn care is monitoring and reducing risk. Hospital births, or at least home births with medical backup, make it easier to manage complications for everyone, and while it's simple, the APGAR score gives a good indicator of what condition a newborn is in. After delivery, we need to make sure the baby is eating, peeing, and pooping with normal vital signs and that the family is set up for success at home. In the meantime, a shot of vitamin K drastically reduces the risk of bleeding, the hepatitis B vaccine protects their little liver, and at least for the time being, erythromycin ointment is recommended to prevent eye infection. Screening for hearing, congenital heart disease, and metabolic, hematologic, and immune disorders will also help ensure the baby gets a healthy start as it heads home from the hospital. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, you can email me at pedsoup at gmail.com or reach me on Twitter at pedsoup. That's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P. If you like what you heard, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peed Soup.